host, Patrick Darms. And I am your co-host, Anton Paras. And we have a first-time guest, Sean O'Connor. Welcome to the podcast. Good evening, gentlemen. How's it going? Long-time listener, first-time guest speaker. I'm excited to be here. It's we're going excited well. to have you, Sean. Yeah. Let's do this thing. So Sean is a about as big of a horror movie expert as I know. That is his credentials for being here. A very a very long list of credentials. But yes, yeah. I mean, if there is a horror movie, I am trying to watch it. Doesn't matter how good, how bad, how cheesy, I'm in for it. Uh, let's give the listeners a bit of an idea. Sean, do you have any uh, favorites you'd like to recommend? Do you have any that you would say, how, do you have any bad ones that you would recommend? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a, anyone that knows me, knows that Halloween is actually my favorite horror movie of all time. So I will try my best not to be too biased in this conversation today with Halloween too, but but keeping that in mind. But, you know, as far as horror movies goes in genre, I think gore isn't always necessarily better. I, I like suspense. I like um, anything that, you know, keeps you guessing and keeps you on the edge of your seat. What was that one movie I just saw recently that was actually really good? Um, let let me in, not let me in. The um, the movie with the hand on the cover. Oh man, now it's going to kill me. I can't let think of it. Let the right anything. one in? Is that one? No. 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 Um, oh, I know man. what you're talking about. My, my memories. It Unless was I have it written it's a, down. It's a Gen Z director. He made it out of Australia. I'll get the name. Bring Is it, it Let Me Evan. Talk? Yes. Yes. Anything oh, I got new that right. and fresh. Something. Yeah, something with... Uh, let me something. But regardless, right? Anything that's going to kind of change the, the horror landscape and keep you guessing and try something new and original. And I think what I love so much about Halloween, at least the original, right, going back to 1978, is that it was a different, fresh perspective that set up a genre and set the landscape for so many other horror movies after it. And you can stack mm-hmm. it up against some similar themed movies like Friday the 13th and, and Nightmare on Elm Street, and they don't even come close to, I think, building that that aura and that that vibe and feel that, that Halloween does. So I'm excited to talk about it today. Excellent. Awesome. Well, just so the listeners know, and I think we made this clear on our season three preview, but we're, of course, talking about the original Halloween 2 from 1981, not the Rob Zombie one, because I had a couple people reach out to me and ask, like, which Halloween 2s should I watch? Don't watch the Rob Zombie one. Although yeah. I've actually never seen it, but I'm just, I haven't heard great things. I've seen both. Uh, if you want to see Mike, uh, Malcolm McDowell as Loomis, it's not bad. That's not bad. He can't be better um, than Donald. I like. <laughs> no, no, that's that's very fair. You can't you can't unseat the king. Um, I shot him six very, times. <laughs> but it's a very different take. It's a very Rob Zombie take. Mm. I I absolutely hate anything Rob Zombie touches. I don't know if in the minority there I am, but. Man, uh-huh. House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects. I hate all of those movies. I think that it always he always crosses a line that I just don't necessarily enjoy where it always for whatever reason goes to just rape or something along those lines. I don't know why he always goes that far, but but he does. I know, um, I know so what you mean. You you always wonder, Rob Rob Zombie, are you okay? Yeah, like, I know. Someone check in on that guy. I don't think you are in the minority on that. I think a lot of people would agree with you. And I like the vibe that he had with his first Halloween, right? Rob Zombie, I think it was off to a good start, but just like every other movie that he has, he just seems to take it a little too far and it doesn't align to what I'm looking for in a horror movie. So, well, yeah. the, the studios uh, probably agreed enough that they're like, let's just continue the original storyline. Yeah, let's just <laughs> pretend then, that these never happened. Yeah. Yep. Uh, 
Anton, I think we want to get a little bit of admin out of the way before we delve into the discussion on Halloween too. Uh, something yeah. that's a listener pointed out to me and something we missed during our Prometheus episode when we were doing the research. There is a new untitled alien film coming out next August. Ooh. Yeah, it was Ooh. originally supposed to be exclusively on Hulu, but it was recently upgraded to a theatrical release by 20th Century Fox. Ridley Scott is co-producing it. It's directed by an individual named uh, Fede Alvarez. Um, I apologize if I didn't pronounce this person's name correctly. Um, I've never heard of this filmmaker, but it, and it, it stars a group of actors that I've also never heard of. But I thought that was worth mentioning, that there is a new <laughs> alien film coming out next year uh, i will not be seeing it because i hate all of them except for the first two Dude. is it true it's actually a crossover with fast and the furious so vin diesel and team are going to go fight aliens on the moon well so so it's a uh, alien romulus is, the, is oh is that oh it has a title now yeah. i didn't even get yeah, that right alien romulus <laughs> okay love it i will still i will still see it they've been terrible recently but <laughs> sign me up why not <laughs> And by the way, the name of the movie for everyone listening, talk to me. So we were close. Talk to me. Highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's a great horror movie. Yeah, I've heard I've heard that's good from a few other folks, too. I do want to check that out now. When you look at the cast for uh, the new Alien movie, a majority were born after 1998. Oh, no. So. Oh, boy. A few people born in like 2001. I'm really Let's looking forward to uh, the one that they're making in a couple years, which is an Alien Vegas vacation. <laughs> oh, I, man. I'll take that. Dude, I'll take that. I'd rather have some fun with it. We'll we'll see about this. I mean, did either of you get a chance to see that Predator film that came out? Prey. Which one? Prey? On Prey, Amazon or yeah. Hulu? Prey. Yeah, it was pretty yeah. good. I actually I actually liked it. I thought it was a fresh perspective yeah. Yeah, on I liked the it. Predator series. Yeah. So I was kind of thinking maybe they're going to move in a similar direction like that. Take a little fresh perspective, but we'll see. Well, Listen, you, I'm open let to, me know. to any any new ideas. I'd rather them try something new with an existing franchise than just do the same recycled garbage they've been doing for the past however many years, um, ever since the first two. Right, exactly. I for think sure. Alien Three was on this podcast, right? Yeah, that was that was. Yeah, we 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 hated it, and I pointed out on there like the the story of Ellen Ripley. It gets concluded in Aliens. There's no need for a sequel to that movie. No, no need. No. So uh, before we start to really dig in, I did want to give, you know, Sean the platform. Was there anything that you wanted to plug or anything in particular that uh, you wanted to give a shout out um, as, as our special guest? Wow. Yeah. Um, that, that's a huge responsibility. Um, I, I really don't have anything in particular I need to plug. Um, I guess DB Quality Paint would be the only thing. Dennis Bursack, I know friend of the pod, just, just plugging his business. That's, that's it. <laughs> It's very noble. Of uh, appreciate the plug, and uh, yeah, well, we're really excited to dig in. Halloween two, after failing to kill stubborn survivor Laurie and getting shot six times by Doctor Loomis, Michael Myers has followed Laurie to the Haddonfield Memorial Hospital, where she's been admitted for Myers' attempt on her life. The institution proves to be particularly suited to serial killers. However, as Myers cuts, stabs, and slashes his way through the hospital staff to reach his favorite intended victim. Halloween 2 was released on October 30th, 1981 by Universal Pictures. It was directed by Rick Rosenthal. The screenplay was written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. The film stars Jamie Lee Curtis, Donald Pleasance, Dick Warlock, Charles Cyphers, and Jeffrey Kramer. A budget of $2.5 million, that is only $8.4 million today. And a box office return 
of $25.5 million. That is the equivalent of $85.6 million today. So cheap movie, but made a pretty good amount of money. Sean, as you are the guest, why did you choose Halloween 2 to discuss? Even though you already sort of told us, please elaborate. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and, and first off, I do have to call out that the the low budget for Halloween 2 is still much, much higher um, than Halloween 1. I think the, the budget for Halloween 1 was something like $325,000. Yeah. Very low budget movie. So, so impressive nonetheless. Yeah, but as I alluded to earlier, right, the Halloween franchise—I'll I'll put that in air quotes—is you know my my favorite horror franchise. The the first movie, in my opinion, is I think the the perfect horror movie. It, it has every component, you know, at a basic level that I'm looking for. Um, you know, in, in any horror movie, right? You have a man in a mask slowly chasing after you with a very slow walk trying to kill everyone in his sight and is it the goriest is it the most action-packed or or intense no but but the tension buildup and and the just the nerves and how you're staying on the edge of your seat the entire time just comes second to none and listen i had to jump on this pod to give my real i would say probably biased perspective on, on halloween too and i think how how you rate or how you view this movie drastically depends on on which category you throw it into right if you're throwing it into its own standalone movie right halloween 2 without ever seeing halloween 1 i think you rate it entirely differently than if you were watching halloween 1 than halloween 2 right because if if you've never seen Halloween 1 before and you're just kind of jumping into Halloween 2, the movie's not that great. It's kind of a little bit boring. Um, I think it gets slow at times in the beginning. Once it gets started, it's, you know, it's good. But, um, you know, knowing what I know and having that bias towards Halloween, Halloween 1, I think makes the movie much, much better. So would love to, you know, talk about some of those points on the pod today and, and, and share my perspective. But that's why I wanted to hop on to talk about a movie that I love and a franchise that I love. And what Love better it. serial killer, murderer, lunatic than Michael Myers, man? He's the OG, the original, the guy. Wow. Beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the first Halloween is about as iconic as a horror movie gets. It's one of the rare horror movies that I would call prestige horror, where it mm-hmm. has the critical acclaim in addition to the legendary status. I guess it really didn't invent the slasher genre. Maybe Texas Chainsaw did. Maybe Black Christmas. Maybe technically if you go all the way back to Psycho. But it seems to get the credit for really kickstarting the slot, the slasher genre. Would you say that? Yeah, I totally agree with that statement. In terms of horror films, a monolith for sure. Sean put it really well. Like This, this film is iconic and yeah. definitely one of the most influential horror films ever made. Yeah, Sean, that's a good question for you. Is the original Halloween the most influential horror movie of all time? Is I it can't even close? see how, how it's not. Right? I mean, I mean, you look at the year 2023 going into probably 2024, they're still making Halloweens, right? And people are still afraid of Michael Myers. There are YouTube videos and TikToks of, of people in Michael Myers masks chasing people around, right? I mean, there, there really isn't anybody scarier than Michael Myers. And how they were able to do it, it wasn't anything over the top or dramatic with CGI. It's incredible on this little minuscule budget what they were able to create. Just a bunch of friends just 
going around the corner and creating a horror movie. It's awesome. And it's just influenced so many other movies. And it's kind of like, you know, Apple wasn't necessarily the first smartphone, but they created the most influential smartphone that influenced so many others. You know, BlackBerry was technically before it, but Apple did it the best at that time and became the standard for everything else. And I think Halloween has also done that. Yeah, and at the same time, too, not just the film itself, but maybe even looking at the template, the archetypes created, um, the the pacing, the way that the formula of the film, you see that, how often has it been imitated, right? A million times. It's been ripped off. Oh, yeah. I, I couldn't even tell you how many times. It, it's ripped off itself numerous times, right? They've tried, <laughs> yes, it they've has. tried to recreate <laughs> it how many times, and they still haven't really done it successfully. No. Um, you can make an argument for... You know, in the new Halloween trilogy, the first one, I forget the name of it now because there's been so many of them. I think it's just called Halloween. Yeah, it might just be called Halloween. That was actually closer to what it could have been. And then it went completely off the rails during the second and third one. Um, But yeah, even even its own franchise is having a hard time recreating the magic that was created in the first Halloween. But winding the clocks back to 1981, to the the film we're discussing, Halloween 2, this is as direct as a direct sequel gets. It begins immediately after the first one ends. I got to be honest, there's so many Halloween sequels that I do feel like even though this is technically supposed to be the second half of what's like a three-hour film, this one sort of is easy to forget simply because of all the other ones that followed, right? Including the just the absolutely bizarre third one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then they, you know, they read, they bring Michael Myers back in the fourth one. And I saw probably all of them when I was younger. I saw this one when I was younger, but I can't remember the last time I watched it. I didn't remember a ton about it. And I completely forgot. And this is where the spoilers will, be, will begin. If any of our listeners don't realize it at this point, our podcast is full of spoilers. But I completely forgot this was the end of Michael Myers. This has a definitive ending. And it does. The, it, it does. It does. And the reason yeah. why Anton and I wanted to cover it is because, number one, it didn't get great reviews, which isn't unusual for horror movies. But it's interesting because the first one did get great reviews. This one didn't. And even amongst Halloween fans online, it seems to be divisive. Some people praise it as a worthy sequel and a worthy second half of a story. Others say it's just a cheap looking slasher movie that relied on more gore. And the other part of it is, this is not officially directed by John Carpenter, but it kind of might as well be. His fingerprints are all over over it. Yeah, all over this movie. What what do you guys think of Carpenter as a filmmaker in general? I love John Carpenter. So do I. I I mean, you, you take a look at the way that he puts together a great horror film, and then look at those same elements that he put together um, to put together a great classic, like big trouble in little China. I love that movie. (laughs) Yeah. He, he has an interesting career. I have a lot of respect for him. He's done some great work, truly legendary work. He's an incredibly important filmmaker. I think he's probably a lot more ripped off, not just from the first movie, but I think in general, he's more ripped off than a lot of people realize. He did peak early in his career, though. If you look at his filmography, nothing he did after the 80s really comes close. In my opinion, you get you get Halloween, which, of course, the 70s. Escape from mm-hmm. New York, one of my favorite movies. The Thing, Great also movie. one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Big Trouble in Little China is really fun. Right. No, I, I, I see where you're getting at. And you can't forget The Fog, too. I'm pretty sure he directed The Fog as well. He did. Right, Another good right after Halloween. Which is yeah. a great movie. Yeah, he, he ripped right, off he in a row. He did Halloween, The Fog. He produced and wrote Halloween 2. 
Escape from New York the same year, and then The Thing all in a row. Pretty good run. Wow. What a run. And, you know, I'm, I'm putting it on the record now. The Thing is my favorite horror film of all time. It's a worthy choice. We could I mean, technically cover it, right? that on this podcast, Anton, because it, it bombed when it came out, and it didn't get good reviews. Ooh. Technically qualifies yeah. for why wasn't it better. Ooh, I'd but love it's funny, to talk about it. 40-something years later, right? The Thing, Halloween, they still come back to theaters for, for those special showings. And they sell out. So oh, yeah. it's funny that they're still so popular. Yeah, it's called Staying Power. Later. Yeah, but you're right. I, I love John Carpenter as a director. Some of his movies are my favorite movies of all time. But I, I do understand the divisiveness, divisiveness Excuse me, between horror fans on, on this Michael Myers movie, right? Halloween 2, because you're right, Pat. At the end of it, there's a, you know, no spoilers, giant explosion. Michael Myers dies. Loomis dies. That's it. It's over, but I but I think there there are a lot of flaws to this movie throughout. That I I, I think if if it didn't have Halloween one and the momentum from Halloween one, it would have totally flopped, right? I I think that it I was really fair. counting on mm-hmm. on the momentum from Halloween one and and the the awe and the shock factor and and everything like that with that first movie. Yeah, I think that's was, fair. Well, let's get into it. Let's um let's start with the production history. Going into the production, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, who wrote the first one as well as this one, had originally considered setting the sequel a few years after the events of Halloween. However, there wasn't they weren't really serious about doing a sequel until producer Erwin Yablins approached them about doing one while they were busy making The Fog, which was released in 1980. So if we're reading between the lines, Carpenter did this for the money and because he kind of was forced to. Yablons, Yablons <laughs> was going to produce The Fog for Carpenter. However, he became involved in a lawsuit with another studio executive, and this was the end result. So Carpenter settled by agreeing to write and produce this film for Yablons in exchange for, uh, for him allowing him to make The Fog elsewhere. So pretty interesting uh, setting. For What's his name, Anton? Yablons? Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's why I wanted to let you start this. I wasn't sure. <laughs> Yablons? Yeah. Um, well, their original idea was for Myers to track Lori Strode to her new home in a high-rise apartment building, um, which was later changed to that hospital setting. And we mentioned this in the intro. The sequel was intended to conclude the story of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which released a year later, contained an entirely separate, unrelated story. The filmmakers' intentions were for this to be an anthology series in the same vein as The Twilight Zone. Quick sidebar. That interests me more than just more and more Michael Myers movies. I didn't like Halloween 3, but I I was kind of disappointed that they to learn that that's what they originally wanted to do and they didn't get to pursue it. I, I see what you... It's like the idea of... You have a different focus for like horrific things happening on Halloween. Yeah, I, I I really like that idea. So it's like Halloween the brand versus like the brand is Michael Myers. What could have been right? Right. I mean, you have you have some movies out there today that kind of do something like that. Um, what tales tales of Halloween, right? With right, I think that's the name of it. With that kid on the front cover, kind of looking like a, like a mini scarecrow, right? That one. Um, you have the VHS series that kind of have a little horror montage in it. But yeah, imagine we had a Halloween style anthology series. 
That would know, be awesome. From the creative mind funny. of John Carpenter, we could have gotten yeah. it. Featuring the, third, the Crypt Keeper. The third Halloween is one of those movies where I watched once when I was younger. You know, I grew up watching horror movies. The first horror movies, throwing it in air quotes, that I ever watched, my dad had me watch Abbott and Costello versus the vamp uh dracula versus the mummy yep. versus frankenstein right that was kind of my segue into real horror to see if i would actually you know be able to sleep at night but then i went into halloween so i watched halloween one halloween two and halloween three to start and i hated halloween three and then i watched it a few years later and i still hated it but now i'm reading reviews on it and it, it seems like it's becoming some sort of cult classic with people and if they're taking out any idea of Michael Myers when they're watching this movie and keeping it kind of as like an anthology piece where it's completely mm. unrelated to that series, people seem to like it a lot more. I think I had a hard time going from Halloween 1 and Halloween 2 into this Halloween 3 with no Michael Myers. So I want to watch it again, for sure. It's one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. It is weird. It's more of oh, a yeah, sci-fi, was... I think, than yeah. a horror. It was a bit of a left turn. You can definitely see the Twilight Zone influence, right? Like, it makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. I don't think it's very good, though. But uh, Plowing ahead. Yes. When asked in a 1982 interview, what happened to Myers and Loomis, Carpenter flatly answered, the shape is dead. Pleasance's character is dead, too, unfortunately. And, of course, this uh, this would be retconned. Both characters would be brought back to life for the fourth installment, not so subtly titled The Return of Michael Myers. So clearly uh, the studio saw where the money was really coming for the franchise. Shout out Paul Rudd. He's an Halloween <laughs> <element> 4. <laughs> Carpenter and Hill wrote the screenplay for this film as well as produced it, and Carpenter also co-wrote the score. In his own words, Carpenter described the writing process as involved a lot of drinking. He also confessed he re- he really wasn't sure what he was doing. I mean, I remember reading a few articles that were saying he had about a six pack uh, while on those nights uh, writing the script. I think he was uh, that was a conservative well, <laughs> estimate, probably too. I was going to say at least we have something in common because after hearing his script and watching it, I have to down a six pack just to cope with that pain. So um, that it, that sounds accurate. Uh, who who was that a uh, baseball player that threw the no hitter while on LSD? I know who you're talking about. I don't know his name. Was it Doc? I think it was Doc something. Um, I think you're right. And 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 I feel like I'm almost kind of feeling like if if that was like the player was able uh, was able to have like a no hitter while on LSD. This is John Carpenter like while drunk writing a screenplay like this. Like the the dude is like pretty talented to be yeah, fair. He's pretty good. <laughs> Pretty good attempt. Doc yeah. Ellis is the Doc picture. Ellis. There was yeah. so uh, Deborah Hill mentioned that the final film screenplay differentiated significantly from the initial drafts. Erwin Yablons was dis- was disappointed with the first drafts, calling it pedestrian and predictable. The plot twist of Laurie being Michael's sister was initially never planned by Carpenter and Hill, but was conceived, according to Carpenter, purely as a function of having to decide to become involved in the sequel to the movie where I didn't think there was really much of a story left. He would later refer to this plot line as silly and foolish, though it would go on to shape the narrative arc of the series and the subsequent films. And this, of course, would be a retcon in the 2018 reboot film, which was awkward when they both showed up at the same family reunion. (laughs) Uh, Halloween 2 had a much larger budget than its predecessor, as Sean pointed out. Two and a half million dollars compared to only 325k for the original. 
Frankly, I'm not really sure how it cost that much more unless they just all got raises and it cost $2 million to rent out a hospital. Because knowing what we know about the healthcare industry today, it would cost $200 million. And I think most of that budget probably went towards the final explosion, honestly, because the rest of it was them just walking around the hallways of yes, the, uh, the abandoned mm-hmm. hospital, which we'll get to. Yeah, the darkest hospital of all time. Which yeah, <laughs> Everyone dark. there was taking PTO at the time. <laughs> yeah. It's the healthiest town in Illinois. At one point, they considered making this a 3D release. <laughs> Thank goodness they didn't. Uh, like cinematographer Dean Cundy, who had shot the first film, returned for this one, turning down the opportunity to shoot Poltergeist to do so. Carpenter refused to direct this film, stating in an interview, quote, I had made that film once and I really didn't want to do it again, end quote. Tommy Lee Wallace, the art director in the first film, was offered the chance to direct, but he also turned it down. He would end up directing the third film the following year. Probably not a great call on Universal's part. Uh, Rick Rosenthal was ultimately hired to direct. He was an unknown at the time, and therefore cheap, whose only real experience was a handful of TV episodes. Carpenter chose him mainly based on a short film that he had made called The Toyer. And for the record, Rosenthal is still unknown. I dare you to find anyone who knows who he is. To his credit, Rosenthal made every effort to copy the style and elements of the original film, saying, quote, conceptually, it's not at all my film. It's a continuation of a John Carpenter and Deborah Hill film, end quote. Anton, this reminded me of what should have happened on Superman 2. Remember, they hired Richard Lester yep. to replace Richard Donner. And right off the bat, he was just like, yeah, I'm not going to film this at all. Like the guy that already filmed 80% of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really wish that had that. I really wish the Halloween 2 situation had happened for Superman 2. But uh, it didn't. It did not. So so we got what we got. Yeah. Back to Halloween else. 2. Nick Castle <laughs> could not reprise his role of the shape in this movie because he was busy starting his directing career. He was replaced by Dick Warlock. Halloween 2 was filmed over a six-week period between April and May of 1981, mostly at two hospitals, one in Los Angeles, the other one in Pasadena. According to the film's official website, quote, Carpenter came in and directed a few sequences to clean up some of Rosenthal's work, end quote. We will get to that a bit more in one of the reasons. And while the film ended up doing very well at the box office, considering its low budget, it it didn't make nearly as much as the first one. It ended up with a 33% Rotten Tomato score, which is, you know, pretty bad. Again, we mentioned this is one of the reasons why we wanted to to cover it. And um, they actually made a novelization of this that became a bestseller in 1981. And Anton, I didn't read it. Oh, okay. I'm surprised to hear that. I I feel like what really could have been in the novelization that's not in this. Ah, Fair enough. I I did want to give a shout out. Um, I know with the film, while Nick Castle didn't reprise his role as the shape in this film, Dick Warlock is uh, a very... um, famous stuntman and actor and i do want to give like respect of course to you know we've talked about actors directors screenplay writers um to the stunt the stunt men and women in hollywood who play a pretty significant role so shouts out to dick warlock for really you know giving a pretty great performance it's a good shout shout out jason statham the most famous uh stuntman of all time he's always fighting for um stuntman rights too for oscars and otherwise yep Good call out. I agree I with will, him. It should be an Oscar I know, category. I know we're probably we're probably talking about it later on. I can I can table this for later as far as um, you know the new Michael Myers and the look of Michael Myers. So you you can tell me otherwise, but I, but I do have some thoughts on on that whole component. 
Yeah, no, no, we can we can talk about that right now really quick because this is technically involving in the production. The the mask and the look of Myers. If you watch these films back to back, they are kind of different looking. They are. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess when you're dealing with that low of a budget, you're like, eh. Well, here, here's the thing, right? The the first <laughs> the first Halloween, what made the movie so great? The 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 tension, the build up, and never knowing where 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 Michael Myers was, right? He could pop out at any time. It was almost like he could teleport from point A to point B. But also, he had this this presence about him. He was gigantic, right? Bigger than everybody else, taller than everybody else, broader shoulders than everybody else, and his mask, that that, that iconic mask. William I understand Shatner. budgets yeah, but budgets change, right? And and people change and direction changes, but you know, if you lose a Leonardo DiCaprio or a George Clooney, it's probably hard to to find a new face that that matches that. When you lose a Michael Myers and someone that's really big and someone that's wearing a mask, it's probably pretty easy to find someone who's just as big that you can throw a mask on. For whatever reason, they decided to strap up someone that's built like me, just a smaller guy. It made Michael Myers a little less scary, <laughs> to be quite honest with you, right? And, you know, they still did a really good job of building tension, I think, in some scenes that we could talk about. But I, I think a big miss, right? I think one of my biggest misses is is the demeanor of Michael Myers and that mask. What were they doing with that mask? It just didn't seem right. It seemed like they put a filter on it or something in modern day. I don't I don't really know how to describe it. They they, they cut budget somewhere. That must have been it. Well, the mask was stored under producer Deborah Hill's bed for several years, and she was a heavy smoker. Is that true? Yes. That's the reason. It, it did look warped almost. So I was going to say, if yep. it looks a little smudgy, it, yep. it yeah. looked... Yeah. That's it. Makes sense. And wow. correct me if I'm wrong. I think the masks only got worse as the series went along. I sort of remember. Oh, I, don't, I might be yeah. misremembering that, but until it gets to the, I will say the the new Halloweens basically stink, but the masks and the new Halloweens are pretty cool. Especially Rob Zombies. He did a really good job with the mask in the first one. But that's a huge component of it, right? Some some random, or not maybe not random for some people, but just some some psycho killer slowly walking towards you with a knife. With this iconic mask, indeed, with definitely this, messed with up. With the face of Shatner, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the blank face of overacting. Well, that sounds like a great reason why why wasn't it better? And let's 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 get into this. Let's get into the official reasons. Let's do it. Number one reason is the increased gore. Exactly how much of the reshoots that Carpenter oversaw is not exactly clear. What is clear is that he significantly upped the gore factor from the first film, much to Rick Rosenthal's dismay. Rosenthal originally wanted the violence to be more subtle, and this film received a significant amount of criticism for the, for the increased gore. When asked about this, Carpenter said, quote, that's a long, long story. It was a project I got involved in as a result of several different kinds of pressure. I had no influence over the direction of the film. I don't know about that. I had an influence in the post-production. I saw a rough cut of Halloween 2, and it wasn't scary. It was about as scary as Quincy. So we had to do some post-production work to bring it at least up to par with the competition, end quote. So they did a re-edit, but Carpenter still found it to be too tame, so he took over the editing process and sped up the action. He definitely directed the scenes of the murders of Alice and Mrs. Garrett, and the scene where Myers uh, hears the boombox radio report by many accounts. Rosenthal later complained that Carpenter, quote, ruined my carefully paced film, end quote. Now, the main reason for the increased blood and gore was due to the success 
of this new wave of slasher films that was kicked off with the first films, but really took off in 1980. And it made Carpenter afraid that a film which was scary and R-rated but lacked bloodshed and nudity would do poorly at the box office, leading to the extra graphic material inclusions. What do we think about this? It makes sense, the perception, but at the same time, like there has to be a bit of, I don't know, I almost like to think of it like a horror arms race, right? If the if the competitors are shooting to do it, starting to do it bloodier, then we have to make sure that we can also bloody up to that level. But I think maybe that just takes away from the core concepts of like how to tell like a proper story. And I, but I do agree there was significantly much more gore, right? in this, in this film compared to the first, and I don't necessarily think it needed, it needed to, to tell a great story. I, I not, I didn't really mind the gore too much. I think there were some scenes they probably could have altered or tweaked a little bit. And I think, you know, Pat, after you bringing up those points and, and Anton, you saying this horror arms race, I think you're right. I think the one scene that sticks out to me now that you put it into that perspective is the hot tub scene, right? With what's her name? Nurse Jackie and the, right. and the EMT and they're, they're in the hot tub and you know, she, she's, she's going topless. She's getting in there. Show, showing off the goods and they both have some pretty gruesome ways of dying maybe that was a direct impact or a direct result of this influence from from the slasher genre of Ave. i mean even um the scene that was particularly just disturbing but at the same time confusing was when uh when you find the the dead body with or the the dead doctor with the the syringe in his eye <laughs> And it kind of out of fish tank, <laughs> and you're just like, did that? How did how did that? Did it hit his brain? And yeah. then you then you start to get an idea. Of course, it was an embolism, right. but at the same time, um, it, it very different, right, from the kills that you get in the first film. One hundred percent. I wonder if if some of that is just due to budget. Like, I wonder if they had a bigger budget for the first film, would they have added more gore? But I will say this: this film, Sean, I'm with you. Like, the gore really didn't bother me. I'm so jaded by today's horror movies that like by today's standards i didn't think of this as particularly gory but there are some really gruesome deaths in this the hot tub thing that's one of the most gruesome deaths i've ever seen in any horror movie and i've seen some pretty bad ones where he just keeps dunking her in the water i was just like holy crap and every time he would pull her face out there would be more skin melted off of her face yeah i mean mean, that's like i guess for a horror movie it's pretty creative i've never seen anything like that in a horror movie before and and to be fair like it's great to see that kind of dedication for like the special effects of it that you really, that's pretty iconic with like a John Carpenter film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then some of the, like one of the kills is so ridiculous that it, it's like unintentionally comedic when the police car just mistakes the poor kid from Michael Myers and smashes him into the car and it just explodes. But then they just like walk away. <laughs> yeah. It's just very, you know, it's not realistic. We know cars don't really do that. It just happens out of nowhere, too. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> he's, just, he, he's just crossing the street, that poor kid. Yeah, just poor gets drunk crushed kid. by a car and it just explodes. That, hey, maybe that's where the budget went now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, that would have been like 100 grand. Loomis <laughs> just walks off. He just he knew it wasn't Michael Myers. I shot him like, six times. <laughs> and he just walks away like, oh, shit, I, I, I might have messed up. But we got to find Michael Myers. Let's go. And he just leaves the scene of the crime. Yeah, he's Loomis was a little uh, trigger happy, but I guess that's the <laughs> that's the character that we've come to embrace. I love his performance yeah. in this. I'll get to it a little bit later, but just the, the how deranged he becomes as the, as the movie progressive progresses. He's really the main character. It's not really Laurie. It's him. It's him. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. 
Yeah. She's barely in the second. I mean, she's in it, right? Especially in the beginning. But she's it, it's, pretty catatonic it, for the most part. Yeah, she's just in bed, drugged up. And even when she's awake running from Michael Myers, it still shoots at so many other people throughout the film. But yeah, I think Loomis is definitely the primary actor here. I'm grateful for it because I love Donald Pleasance's performance in here. That he just comes back from the dead in Halloween 4, somehow survives an explosion that killed him and Michael Myers. He only has like the, like, the the scar on his the face, face is the, the burn mark scar. on his face is like pretty small. <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm okay. Yeah, let's go get Michael Myers. I, Sean, f- refresh my memory. How do they explain him surviving that giant explosion? I don't even remember. <laughs> and you asking me to go on this podcast has now triggered me watching all the Halloweens from start to finish. So um, I will let you know in about a day and a half <laughs> what the result of that is. It, it, it's probably something ridiculous, and they just brush it off and then move on with the, you know, extra ridiculous movie. Well, you, I, you get it here, listeners. We'll yeah. we'll update you in a future episode when we realize how <laughs> how do they write in Loomis's return? Uh, yeah. I mean, they, Michael yeah, Myers, getting... you understand, right? Because like he just he can survive anything. Right, apparently. right. He was a Terminator. Makes right, sense. but Loomis, who knew? He also gets stabbed pretty badly too. I don't know if they address that in the fourth one. <laughs> he does. Hot take: Michael Myers always trying to kill off the bloodline. Maybe Loomis has Michael Myers' blood running through him. Maybe he is part Michael Myers and also invincible. That would make more sense than whatever crap <laughs> they tried to pass off in the fourth one. There we go. We can write the next one. Yeah, but I will. I, I I thought the kills in here, gore or not, were pretty creative, which is something you try to look for in a horror movie, and particularly a slasher movie. And you know, it's it's easy to forget this film was released at a time when Halloween was not as ripped off as it is today. So you have to look at it through that lens. This would have been seen as a pretty original movie in 1981. I agree. And I I think they, again, the kills and the, the how people were killed didn't necessarily bother me. And I think there were still some very powerful moments throughout the movie where him not killing people was just as powerful, right? I think of... In the beginning, when he's kind of cutting through town, running from Loomis and his his police squad, Michael Myers needs to find a knife, right? He he walks in on that lady making a ham sandwich for her husband and and, and just walks in and, and grabs her knife. And you see through his POV, which I you know, we could talk about a little bit. I love that they did that throughout the movie where you're actually seeing things through Michael Myers' eyes. Um, but you see him grab that knife in the kitchen, staring at these people in their living room. And then there's that shot that just cuts to two people staring at the TV with Michael Myers behind them in the kitchen. And he doesn't kill them, right? But he has a knife in his hand and he just walks away. And I don't know, something something about that scene shows that there there was still that balance in this movie where it wasn't just a complete onslaught of killing, right? There, Michael Myers still had that discipline for whatever, whatever you want to call it, where he didn't have to kill everyone in his path. He was methodical with who he killed and, and how he killed them. No, very well said. The, the The killing is intentional. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to, you know, pose to you know the both of you would would you say that this time period, you know, like the 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 early nineteen eighties, how what what are your thoughts in terms of just like where this fits, where Halloween two fits in, in terms of like the violence? We talked about this arms race. How does it fit in compared to similar films that release at the same time, like? Especially when we think of comparisons of this was also the same time period release of 
the Friday the 13th series? Okay, that's a good question. If I recall, the first Friday the 13th came out the year before this, and the second one came out the same year as this, right? Same year I think so, yeah. In the summer. Sean, I'm going to rely on you again here. Correct me if I'm wrong. Those movies progressively got more and more ridiculous with the gore. I I remember the first two being obviously gory, but fairly tame compared to where the series would end up. Friday the 13th followed a very similar path as, as Halloween, right? Friday the 13th won. Jason Voorhees technically wasn't even really in it as the killer. It was right, his mom. Right, exactly. Just, just just some crazy person in the woods killing a bunch of campers. The second one is when we really met Jason Voorhees. And I think I would make the argument that the, the second Friday the 13th is the best one because that's when we meet Jason and he starts killing people. By the third one is when it goes off the rails. And it's the same thing as, as Halloween. Right. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, because I have it on Blu ray, Friday the 13th 3 is actually Friday the 13th 3D. Um, yeah, <laughs> so, right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And um, there are many, many kills in that one. I think a whole biker gang gets slaughtered outside yeah, of the it, barn, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so, it was, I think it was three or four, even when you start to get the return to the more typical um, Jason uh like hockey mask look because one of them he had like he only had like a a leather like bag over his head yes yeah. you're right no you're right yeah you're right yeah i forget which one that is i think that's and the we third one. say i don't think he gets the mask until the third one yep you could right. be right yeah because yeah, he's just right. some 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 crazy redneck in the swamp in the second one really <laughs> and you know for all of the flaws of the halloween series I do have to say that Halloween never put out a movie, Michael Goes to Hell or Michael Goes to the Hood, right? Or, <laughs> I'm right, pretty sure right. Friday the 13th really went <laughs> off the rails. The Jason Goes to Hell, Jason Goes to New York is one of them, right? Or or something. Yeah, I, Jason in Manhattan, that, I think it's called. Jason in Manhattan, yeah. yeah. I'm thinking of Leprechaun in the Hood. I'm mixing my two horror franchises e- up. Equally ridiculous. And then the one in space. <laughs> yeah. but, but Jason X. No, to to answer just, your question, Anton, yeah. I didn't find the, the gore in here any more like better or worse than, than what was out at the time. Like Alien was a couple years mm-hmm. earlier. That's a really gory movie. Chestburster scene alone. The Shining has a lot of violence in it. Like there, there was... I, I just, I, I again, it, it, you're looking through this in the lens of 1981. Maybe people found it too gory then, but it didn't, nothing jumped out to me compared to its contemporaries. No, and I think, Anton, you hit the nail on the head with, with the word he used, intentional, right? Intentional killing. In the context of Halloween, and I would say even in the context of the early Friday the 13th movies, the, the kills were intentional, right? And I think they served a purpose. Once you start killing or having gore, outside the context of, of the movie that you're watching, it starts to get a little bit ridiculous and you almost get pulled out of that immersion, right? So I didn't find an issue with it in Halloween and I don't think I did in the early Friday the 13th either. You know, you, you can watch certain movies and there can be nonstop gore and it doesn't bother you. I just watched recently a, a, a movie from A24, I believe, Fresh. Has anybody seen that here? I have not, but great studio. Not yeah, seen it. I don't want to. Spo- I don't want to spoil it. Um, if you're gonna watch it, but it's it's a very gory movie. It's basically all about cannibals, <laughs> essentially. Mm, fair um, enough. So, but in that context, I didn't mind seeing severed limbs and and brains and things like that. But I wouldn't want to see that in in some of these movies. So I think as long as it's intentional and it and it helps drive the plot forward as much as there is a plot for horror movies, it's okay. 
What what did you think, Anton? No, I mean, I, I, I agree. I don't think it was necessarily like worse than what it was at the time, but you can see that there were parallels, right? And talk about like horror arms race. It only got more and more ridiculous, like we've talked about as time went on. But I, I think that's just partly the studio trying to figure out how do you continue to milk the franchise and yeah. like focusing on the wrong things? Because is it really the blood and the gore that's drawing in the people or the fact that it was a really well-written story that really drew in like and captivated an audience for like this unstoppable killing machine that just so happened to have like some violence in it. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned the story. Cause that's the second <laughs> reason why this wasn't better. The story. And that's going to involve the characters as well. Sean, you made a very good point in our intro where this story is a success and a failure at the same time. It succeeds as a direct continuation to the events in the first film, in my opinion. It feels like the same night. It looks like the same night. You have the same characters. I have to give Carpenter and Rosenthal a lot of credit for that. It does feel like the second half of a long movie. But on the other hand, to your point, it suffers as a standalone movie because it does nothing to establish Laurie's character at all. She spends most of the film in a hospital bed, unconscious. It relies so much on having seen the first one that it kind of suffers for it. You you basically have to watch this directly after the first one to get the full effect. Yeah, it, it really all comes down to in what context are you reviewing this movie? I love Halloween. I, I really like Halloween too, but I, I find myself having a hard time loving this movie because I, I I feel like it drags a little bit in the beginning. And again, I think it's just it's just riding off the coattails of how good the first one was. So they they felt like they had a little more wiggle room or flexibility to not necessarily have to do as much in the beginning of this movie. Pat, you hit the nail on the head. Character development with these characters, there's there's zero. There's zero character development in this entire movie other than, you know, some some funny little, you know, high school conversations or whatever between the the nursing staff and the hospital staff. There's zero character development. And I think that's something that we had a lot of in the first one. I know um, you know, Lori and the other babysitters had some great conversations just just talking about high school stuff and boys or whatever it is that really just kind of helped set the stage for the movie and again really immerse you into this world of michael myers and, and indiana or haddonfield indiana so it doesn't have any of that in halloween too and i think that's something that, that definitely takes away from the overall score and, and perception of of this movie oh very very well you know well put and you know one thing i just want to add to that is when you don't have stronger character development or at least even a better lens into characters that are I guess like simp- like it doesn't allow the audience to become sympathetic to the demise of some of these characters, right? Yeah, you don't. Yeah, they're getting they're, when they start to get wiped out in the hospital. There was a couple times I'm like, which nurse was that? <laughs> I'm not sure who that was. Back to the direct sequel thing, really quick, because uh, I wanted to get this out because it reminded me of it. It's a completely unrelated film, Anton, but Quantum of Solace would later fall into the same trap, mm-hmm. being a direct sequel, right? Where exactly. if you don't watch it back-to-back with Casino Royale, I think it suffers. Mm-hmm. Now, where Halloween 2 succeeds, where I think Quantum failed, is that at least it is shot and edited exactly the same way as the first one. It looks exactly like the first one. So there's a, there's a really nice deal of continuity that Quantum of Solace lacked with Casino Royale. This is a much more effective way of doing a direct sequel. I will give it that. As a direct sequel, it is effective. 
stylistically. No, I absolutely agree. But to be and, and to be fair too, I think not only just like stylistically, the way that it's directed helps everything like with that continuation helps like having the same writers having the same i guess like someone there to still ha- continue with some sort of vision versus quantum really took a lot of different turns in terms of like even like the what how the story ended up being influenced by current events with a different director oh, right far too many far too many differences Oh, I forgot to mention this in the increased gore part of this. Uh, You have to wonder how much input Carpenter had, because reading about how he co-produced it, he co-wrote it, he oversaw a lot of the editing process, he reshot certain things, it instantly made me think of Poltergeist, because if you guys know your movie trivia, officially Poltergeist was directed by Toby Hooper, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's really a Steven Spielberg film. Yep, of course. And like that one, Spielberg co-wrote it, he co-produced it, and he was apparently, according to the entire cast, he was on set every single day. So I wonder how much of that is here. Like, officially, yes, it's not directed by John Carpenter, but it really should be thought of as a Carpenter film. I agree. And this is his baby, right? He had a lot of good movies during this time period, as as we discussed earlier, but but this this is his film, right? This is the one that... It is. I mean, maybe the thing too, right? You can argue that, but I mean, th- this is the movie that that he'll be remembered for, um, at least by by me and by our generation, right? Who I think Escape from New York you could put in there too. True, yeah, that that's a great movie. I, I very rewatchable. Oh yeah, probably up there with some of the most rewatchable movies of all time, right? This film we mentioned it, right? It's it's only ninety minutes long. I do think it drags a bit in the first twenty five minutes, but it. I, I, I still think it's a really well-paced film, but you know, one of the problems with it is that Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie, the alleged main character, she's only on screen for 25 minutes. It's just not nearly enough. Now It makes no sense. I like Loomis, but it is jarring if you watch this back-to-back with the first one, how out of it she is for you know most of the film. And I think that slow start is really attributed to her just not being in it. I mean, she's the scream queen, right? It's Jamie Lee Curtis. She was in prom night. She's in, she's in Halloween. I mean, she needs to be on camera. She's the one that beat Michael Myers in the first one. She needs to be there earlier. So I think that slow start is because she just wasn't involved. Now I agree with you. I think overall the pacing was, was good. I think once this movie got started, it, it was, it was really good. Right. I think that they, I think they did an awesome job. I think one of my favorite parts about the movie is showing the connection between Lori and Michael Myers and that bloodline by showing their point of view, right? You that like point that? of view camera. I, I, I did, right? Just because it it just showed their connection. They didn't do it for anybody else in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. It just showed brother and sister man, go, going at it one by one. I um, felt it was unnecessary. Interesting. I mean, I'm I'm in the same camp as Pat, and I think looking at the course correction that the series eventually ended up going with in the continuation and like the final films in the recent final films, I think it ended up not being as important to the overall just like I guess understanding the Michael Myers character, and I think like it's better to have a larger ambiguity to like the intenseness of his character that has larger room for interpretation versus like a very clear like oh it's because they're related because i think like that does more of a disservice to how to drive greater interpretation into the nuance of the character well if i'm not mistaken at least the new ones i know every every it seems like every halloween had a different 
movie that they were a sequel to. Like H2O is 20 years after, I think, the yes. second one. Yes. But I yep. think the newest trilogy was technically after the first one. So they had no... Oh, it, in the first one, they don't. One? I believe they took yes. out the second one. Oh, so in the first right. one, there's no okay. relation yep. at all. They don't talk about that relation until the second one because they yeah. just they they make Jamie Lee Curtis come Lori come off as just kind of some lunatic uh, <laughs> doomsday prepper. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, she just kind of went off the deep end after she beat Michael Myers in the first one, and he went to jail. Yeah, I feel like when, when, when that happens to your franchise, when you're like, well, this one retcons the second one that pretends that the three through whatever didn't happen, it's like, it's just time to end it. I have a hard time keeping up. Well, Everyone's hey, a little bit different. Apparently, there, there's 13 films. I, I, I don't even think I've seen half of them. That's massive. I mean... I mean God. No, go ahead. I, I was just going to make a joke. I was if you don't like retcons, then definitely don't approach comic books. <laughs> oh, well, that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. He Don't wasn't eat. even in the last one. I actually turned it off. It was so bad. I will say he, all I know is that he was living in the sewer and some other kid mm-hmm. in town was doing killings um, for him on his behalf. And I then turned it off. Oh, I'm so uh, glad I didn't see it. Don't waste your time. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. Halloween. Don't, don't even waste your time. I've never turned off a movie quicker. <sighs> yeah. Back to Donald Pleasance. He's my favorite thing <laughs> in the film. I'm, I'm, Good I, transition, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> he is my favorite thing in the film. I really like his performance. And it's fine, you know, although it kind of bothered me that Jamie Lee Curtis isn't in it a lot, at least his acting performance is really good. He just becomes more and more deranged. He's also pretty smart, unlike a lot of the other characters in this film who act just like bumbling idiots. Like, remember the scene when um he shoots Michael when he enters the hospital and the, and the marshal's like, he's dead? And he's like, no, he's not. He's still breathing. It's like, oh, he's actually smart. He's the only smart person here. You're talking about after Michael Myers just walks through a glass door? (laughs) (laughs) Just just stumbles through? Yeah. The rest of the acting I have in my notes, it it, it ranges from mediocre to terrible, which is, you know, you you don't watch a horror movie for great acting but i i think one of the reasons why the first movie is the classic that it is is all of the performances are pretty good and it's a sort of a downgrade here the the guy that plays the paramedic i don't even know his name who's like sort of hitting on laurie sort of yeah, trying to uh, be her friend the guy who he, he ends up slipping Dan, in danny, the blood I think it's danny or something like that but yeah, yeah. Like he just randomly comes out of nowhere holding her hand when like when he coma. slips in the blood and knocks himself out like is that oh, is it God. supposed to be funny because he gets back in the, he gets back in the car and just passes yeah. out again yeah, oh, there's just <laughs> a lot of that on the steering wheel horn. Yeah, um, it's not yeah, great. I think in a lot of ways, this movie's a victim of its time because the 80s were just a cheesy time in general for for many movies, yes. right? Where the acting was just a little bit over the top. It wasn't as refined as we're used to today. And the music didn't do it any justice. The the music in the first one, we didn't even talk about this, right? I mean, that's iconic. The the, the Michael Myers chase music. The, John Carpenter the himself music, did the music. <laughs> they, for whatever reason, in the second one, decided to add some sort of weird Atari 80 synth to the music. So it just kind of gave it a weird techno vibe, almost, as Michael Myers is going through a completely abandoned hospital, just slashing up nurses. So I, I think, yeah, I think it fell victim to, to some of the, the cheesier aspects of the 80s as well. You know, Carpenter saw the increased budget and he was like, so I can get more synthesizers? <laughs> Let's add some 808s. 808s. <laughs> 
there's a lot of dumbass characters in it. I do think it's pretty scary, though. Pretty effective horror movie, I gotta say. Yeah, for for ninety minutes, uh, you still see a lot of the iconic pacing that I think. Yeah. Um, you know, you just it's just classic, right? I think of when I think of this movie because I know we keep dwelling on some of the negative components. Talking about the good, right? Anton talking about pacing, talking about that tension again. As soon as Laurie gets really gets involved in this movie, right? When she somehow miraculously knows to get out of bed for whatever reason, the Michael Myers stabs her pillows <laughs> in her bed. As soon as she's out of bed, and that first chase scene happens where she's limping down the hallway and he is just slowly chasing after her. I get chills watching it every single time, just talking about it. I get chills. And then they go down to the basement and he's chasing her through the basement, through the window, to the elevator that slowly closes as she's jamming on the buttons. I mean, you can't replicate that with other horror no, movies. It's I, really I, I just well don't done. know. It's yeah. perfect. It, to me, for all the other flaws, that right there, that scene, that few minute scene makes up for it. Right. Yeah. It, it's a perfect scene. And I, I you know, just to kind of go back to, you know, the the plot point of like the connected bloodline, whether relevant or irrelevant, I think it's that scene that almost displays that like having a plot point like that is irrelevant. Yeah. Because it's more so the importance of there is this unknown force that is coming. And for whatever reason, like you you know what's coming and you know it's inevitable. And I think, like, that's terrifying. The only flaw of the hospital is the obvious one of just how em- just how deserted and empty it is. I, I don't want to harp on it too much because Rick Rosenthal said he based this on a personal experience where him and his wife attended a hospital late at night and it was completely deserted. Like, be that as it may, it doesn't feel realistic. But, Sean, to your point, once the chase gets going, the tension is so good that you almost forget about it. Yeah, I'm almost forgetting about the 10 or so babies just abandoned in the NICU. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That the one nurse just decides to just not pay attention to and then just go in a hot tub and and just get brutally assaulted and murdered. Yeah, how close was that explosion to the babies? Hopefully not too close. Who knows, man. And then still, at the end of it, everybody's dead. No babies are being brought out of the hospital. So where are those babies? What happened? They're 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 okay. Yeah, I, I choose to believe the, they're fine. I wanted I want to believe they're okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you're right. I mean, it's just iconic, right? And again, for all those flaws, for everything that we're talking about, that just brings it all home and makes you realize why Halloween, at least up to that point, is in my opinion the greatest of all time. I agree. I have a I have a nice Roger Ebert quote because he didn't give this a good review, but there's a quote he has about this film that I like, and it applies to a lot of other horror movies. Quote, the plot of Halloween 2 absolutely depends, of course, on our old friend, the idiot plot, which requires that everyone in the movie behave at all times like an idiot. That's necessary because if anyone were to use common sense, the problem would be solved and the movie would be over, end quote. I'm thinking about the security guard. I'm thinking about the nurse trying mm-hmm. to use the walkie-talkie and repeatedly saying, like, I don't know how to use this thing. <laughs> yeah. But oh, you just know they're going to get wiped guard. out. I, yeah, you just, one by one, those yeah. buffoons are just going to die. And I think they do a good job, too. Speaking of that tension, again, the security guard is one of one of these examples where there's just this foreshadowing with a lot of these deaths where, where they basically tell you where Michael Myers is going to be before he's there, but they don't actually put him there multiple times to just kind of keep you on the edge of your seat. And I think of the security guard going 
down that hallway with all those lockers and one by one opening those lockers and then opening the door and then closing it. You think Michael Myers is going to be there. And eventually he just pops out and they do it with the nurses too, with those long hallway shots where the nurses are at the the nurse station and, and you look down the hallway, there's nothing there. And then all of a sudden Michael Myers is there. Um, but yeah, they're all morons. None of, for whatever reason, none of them look backwards or look into any rooms or, or check behind no. any corners. They just, they just, when uh, just when nurse the jackie's in the hot tub and she thinks it's her boyfriend that comes in like most normal people would just turn around <laughs> when they hear someone come in the room but she for whatever reason she doesn't she just starts kissing michael myers hand just caressing his hand it was yeah. just very uncomfortable to watch michael was kind of liking it too by the way he was holding it there for a while well that's what that's what makes her so creepy right yeah uh, like how human is he not very but human enough needs. i like how laurie who's never used a firearm up until that point she gets two clean shots in his eyes classic scene perfect he gets blinded he looks up at the ceiling blood trickling out of his eyes it's like truly it's- iconic stuff it really is an iconic scene, and and like you said, Pat, uh, especially when you get a scene like that and the ending like that, it makes sense as like kind of the bookend of, of the movies. Yeah, like for all the flaws that we already touched on, the final twenty minutes of this movie are like unassailable. It's it's fantastic horror movie. It's stuff. so good. But can I say that last scene with Loomis and Jamie Lee Curtis just pisses me off so much <laughs> because they have an entire hospital to use to run away from slow walking michael myers and they decide to run into the one operating room that doesn't have an exit or a back door and they decide to hide in a corner and just wait for michael myers to enter the room like i I know we have the whole idiot model here but they're not supposed to be idiots they're supposed to be the smart ones no they they planned beforehand They planned beforehand that they were going to blind Michael and then use gas to uh, direct him using the sound of the of the gas hissing out of the tanks. <laughs> oh, they they, they definitely planned that. So, yes, it sounds good to me. That yeah, makes at least Loomis sense, was though. able to pivot out of it, Can and we like talk you about know, Loomis he improvised well. He did some Jason Bourne stuff with the uh, the tanks. Can we explain what the hell he was talking about when they're in the elementary school and there's the blood on the chalkboard? Oh, Sam Hine and or whatever. What what? relevance did that have to the movie it was in gaelic or something like that what was that talking about oh uh, I'm, I'm not really sure why it was in the movie like it <laughs> so doesn't really I, have anything to do with the the brother sister plot either they're just like oh yeah that's a that's a that's a gaelic that's a that's a Celtic yeah, it's a Dutch word, or Gaelic word or something. Yeah, I don't really know what it was. He starts giving I, a not... history lesson, and like the the <laughs> the marshal and like the nurse are just like, okay. <laughs> I, I like to think actually that was the studio planting more because because that has more connection to the third film in terms of like connection to like witchcraft and that greater hit. Like, oh, that's a good point. Maybe they were well, Easter egging it. Yeah, a bit of like an Easter egg foreshadowing that this is like part of like a a universe of just weird things mm. happening that's a good yeah that's a really good point of view on it i didn't think of it that way but just of course, laugh. the only legitimate explanation i would think but but they didn't of course elaborate no. on it it didn't fit into this film it. at all no because i rewatched it again the other night and i was scratching my head i'm like what what purpose does this serve but that would make a lot more sense i think we've maybe said all we can about it yeah and loomis took no accountability for basically killing that kid that's a 17 year old no. kid but Anyway, so no, also, I know, he, I know he's your guy. He pulls a, <laughs> I love Loomis. He pulls a gun on the marshal driving the car. He shoots the window out. And then when they get to the hospital, the marshal's not really holding it against him. I would be pissed off. <laughs> 
he's just kind of like, oh, okay, doctor. <laughs> he, he really was a madman in this no. movie. Oh, yeah. He, he just, uh and then I think as in the fourth one, he becomes like just a complete fool. I, I, Sir, the governor actually summoned you back because yes. we heard you're on a shooting spree. You killed a 17-year-old kid, and you've actually killed more people than Michael Myers. So we're, <laughs> we need you to come home. Thanks. Also, a quick little bit. I'm not sure if either of you noticed this, but they set up how he gets the cigarette lighter, how the one cop is lighting a cigarette and he keeps trying to light Loomis's cigarette, but Loomis doesn't have a cigarette. So the cop just gives him his lighter earlier in the film. Good mm. set, good setup. It's a Chekhov's gun if you've ever seen one. Yeah, I just it's like little stuff like that that makes this movie, I think, pretty good. It's like they got all the little details like that right. Like Loomis isn't a smoker. Why would he have a cigarette lighter? Because the cop gave him one. You know what? I didn't think about that, but I'm glad they were able to trace that back. Yeah, that good director. Better. Yeah. But let me ask a question. Loomis shot the window with the cop. Did he shoot six bullets at Michael Myers when he walked through the glass doors? He, he, I, he I like to think a couple he just, times too. He just reloaded. He just <laughs> carried around freaking oh, Also, I, say, I can't believe I forgot to mention bullet. this. In the <laughs> beginning of the film, which is like, you know, they're showing the end of the first film. He actually shoots him seven times. Did you notice this? Yes. Um, with, the, with the opening, you count seven. Yes. With mm. a six-shooter revolver, he shoots him seven times. And then I was trying to keep a tally of how many times Loomis told other characters he shot him six times. It's at least five. And you hear it from like a distance, like in the very beginning when Michael's seeing the cop cars go by, you, you hear Loomis like, I shot him six times. <laughs> so great man what could have been if maybe one version or one installment of the anthology was loomis as the killer because he you know he's just a madman just going on these killing sprees and uh, and just shooting up haddonfield i mean he was a he was a menace in that he was in in, in the film so <laughs> the governor recalled him <laughs> yeah, literally uh, it's pretty serious Sir, we, we need you to come home please yeah. just stop <laughs> Somebody put somebody put him to bed. Uh, before we wrap this up, I do want to give a shout out to the steady cam work from director of photography mm -hmm. Dean Cundy. It's outstanding. Mm -hmm. Just like with the first movie, one of the strengths of this one of just how well filmed it is. And this is a prime example of how great cinematography can elevate the material. This is just one of the best filmed horror movies you'll ever find from any era. And Dean Cundy guys will like this mm -hmm. it's pretty good he is probably one of the best cinematographers ever he has shot some of the most famous films of all time check this out the original halloween this obviously escape from new york the thing the back to the future trilogy who framed roger rabbit hook jurassic park and apollo 13 most recently he shot several episodes of the mandalorian and the book of boba fett talk about an amazing resume wow yeah that's impressive yeah Decades. Literally can't miss. Pretty good. It's like it's it all starts to make sense, right? When you like you know, you see like how could a three hundred thousand dollar movie like Halloween look so good? It's like, well, look at the guy working on it. Look at the other stuff he's done. So true. Yeah. Not nothing nothing compares to to what they're able to create, the the feel, the atmosphere with, with these Halloween movies, at least the first two. And that, that makes total sense. Anything to add, gentlemen, before we wrap this up and declare our verdicts? No, I think we're, I think I'm ready to bring this one home. Alrighty. Well, Sean, as you are the guest, it's time to talk about whether or not we liked it. Would you like to go first? I would like to go first. Okay. I, we do um, an A to F scale. I think just to set some context, Halloween is a misunderstood, Halloween 2 is a misunderstood movie that does have flaws, is not perfect, 
but I think when it gets going and it gets to its roots and to its core of what makes Halloween great, it's just as good as any other slasher movie. But again, we mentioned things like character development and some some weird aspects of the movie definitely take away from it. I think this movie is a solid B minus trending towards B. Nice. Well said. Anton, you want to go next or you want me to? Yeah. I'm I'm more than happy to. Um I mean, it's it's very impressive to see a sequel that ended up as well as it was, especially compared to other films that we've, you know, talked about where there was direct sequels that weren't quite um as strong as the first and actually quite confusing. And I think one of the more just impressive things is for all intents and purposes, Carpenter, you know, phoned it in when writing the screenplay. And the fact that he was still able to, you know, put out, you know, very quality work, it, it just lends itself to the fact that, you know, John Carpenter is a master of horror. And even though um, it may not be like may, may not be as great of a film as the first, uh, still very enjoyable, um, still very impressive film. And I'm actually right there at a B minus. Nice. Well, I'll say this. It's not even close to being as good as the original, but that's okay. This is a really enjoyable horror sequel. I really liked rewatching it. I really enjoyed it. It's definitely best viewed back to back with the first. It works best as a companion piece. It's a really well-made film, and ultimately it does feel like a logical conclusion to the story begun in the first film. Rick Rosenthal does a competent job of imitating Carpenter's style. Realistically, I think this is probably as good as a direct sequel could have been unless Carpenter himself had directed all of it. It's really well executed. It mostly delivers on what it sets out to do. There's a couple of storytelling decisions that are that don't really enhance the film. The brother-sister thing I wasn't a fan of, but the actual horror elements of this are, are really, really good. If you watch it back-to-back -back with the first one, I think it holds up really well. It suffers a little bit as a standalone watch, but I'm right there with the both of you. It's B minus for me. Pretty good movie. Nice. Pretty good movie. Yeah. Pretty Could good. Pretty good. Yeah. Certainly better than the Rotten Tomatoes score. 33% is harsh. Really? It's a way better movie I, than that. You said it before, Pat. Horror movies have a different scale. And Pete Baldeo and I have spoken about this many times. Horror movies just have a lower ceiling as far as ratings go you know if i look at I, I look at imdb i like user scores over critic scores for horror movies at least and i feel like if you can find a horror movie in the sixes you found yourself a gem you found i believe that's movie. where this is i think the the user score in rotten tomatoes is yeah. like 67 percent and that's perfect. If you get in the sevens, it's a phenomenal horror movie, right? It is something that is, is groundbreaking or, or just completely fresh. Talk to me was one of those. I hope you guys can take a look at it and watch it soon. It, it was really good. But yeah, if you're getting in the sevens. Now, if you're watching some sort of you know drama or Oscar-worthy movie, it's in the sevens. Probably not that good, right? You want something in the eights, trending towards nines. So again, I think how we look at horror movies... And how we look at regular movies, or it's entirely different. I'm glad you mentioned Pete, and shout out to Pete, who has been a guest on this podcast a few times before. He was originally supposed to appear on this episode with us, but due to scheduling conflicts, he was uh, unable to make it. But uh, uh, gentlemen, that is it for Halloween 2. Anton, I think we've already recorded the episode that listeners will be hearing next week. Is that right? Why, yes, we did. That film will be The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oof. Pretty fun. I had to I have to say I had fun rewatching it. Not a not a very good movie, but that's okay. 
Right. Not not, not a good a, not a Sean not Fox. a great movie at all. <laughs> I I hate that movie. But I, I, I yeah. think I've turned that off a few times to try to get through it. It, it well, ain't great, look. but it was kind of fun to revisit. I hadn't seen it in a long time. Yeah, listen to the episode and let us know what you think. Yeah, yeah we'll do. Indeed. Uh, and as Guys, always. I had a blast. Oh, go ahead. No, I had a blast. It was a good time. We, yeah, thank yeah, you so much. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much for being there, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll have you back in um pretty soon, actually. You're going to be on the Avatar The Way of Water episode. I do not share the same bias for the Avatar series as I do for Halloween, so I will have a different perspective coming into that podcast, that's for sure. I think all three of us will. (laughs) Yeah, that is it for this week's episode of Why Wasn't It Better. As always, listeners, if you like what you hear and you have not already done so, please make it official by giving us a follow wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. When we talk about the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Sean, once again, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks, guys.